welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. I don't think I'll shock anyone to say that here in the United States, we're a divided nation. No matter who you voted for in the 2020 presidential election, I bet you know someone who voted the other way. I bet you know someone who feels discouraged and angry, just as much as I bet you know someone who feels vindicated and hopeful. You yourself likely fall into one of those camps. As we barreled through those last few weeks of the election, I came across a book that I thought might bring a bit of consolation in this otherwise chaotic moment. It's called The Ignatian Guide to Forgiveness, and it's by Marina McCoy, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Full disclosure, it's not actually available to the public until December, though you can pre-order through Loyola Press, but it's well worth your time. The question for me was this, if we practice Ignatian spirituality, a spirituality that by its very nature demands that we put into action what we experience of God, how does an Ignatian approach to forgiveness play out in this moment? What does it demand of us and what does it offer? How might it heal our relationships with one another? In today's podcast, I talked with Marina about answers to those questions and more. And hey, if you like hearing reflections like these, you might like reading them too. Consider subscribing to our weekly email reflections. Just go to jesuits.org weekly. All right, Marina McCoy, welcome to our AMDG podcast. We're so glad to have you with us today. Thank you for having me, Eric. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. You have this, this new book, this book that's not even out yet. Um, uh, it's coming out all about um, Ignatian spirituality and, and forgiveness. And I think it's such a uh, an important topic at, at all times, but particularly uh, in this in this current moment. And I, I, want, I wonder if we could just kind of start out, if, if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what you think is distinctly Ignatian about, uh, about your approach to, to thinking about forgiveness and, and especially how you, how you do it in this book. Yes. Yeah, so I think that I've been lucky to have a good formation from Jesuits um, over the years and have learned a lot from them about Ignatian spirituality in a way that helped me in my own process of forgiveness. Um, I think one thing that Ignatian spirituality does well is it helps us to distinguish between our deepest and most authentic desires and then the things that we kind of think we want in the day-to-day -day of ordinary life. And so one thing I wanted to do in exploring forgiveness was not to approach it from the point of view of moral arts or principles, but rather from the point of view of desire and freedom. You know, I think Ignatian spirituality is really a lot about how are we free to love? How are we free to be loved? How are we free to be celebratory with one another? And forgiveness is a big part of that. I loved uh, throughout your book, or uh, particularly at the, the beginning, you, you, the idea of desire, as you said, and and being able to name uh, that, you know, what you want out of that moment of forgiveness. Can you say a little bit more about that? How, how you might, uh, as yourself, or just in, in maybe inviting one of your students or one of your friends to, to really discern, you know, how, how do you figure out what you want in, in that moment of forgiveness? Yeah, I think it's challenging. And I think it could take time to, to discern what it is that we want. I mean, I can think of times in my life where I thought I wanted to forgive a person and it turned out what I really wanted was them to love me more or to show me mm. care or for an apology from them, even though in a way it sounded like I wanted something like forgiveness for myself. 
I would say I did want forgiveness, but there were other things going on. So for me, it was important to unpack the different layers of desire and, and to figure out that, yeah, actually at the bottom of my heart, I did mostly want to forgive and reconcile, but I had a lot of other things to sort through before I would be free to do that. Yeah, all that kind of the other stuff that you don't even think about. You know, when you, you come at it and you say, I want to forgive and, and you assume you're in the right and you just dive in. Uh, but it seems like you're, you're, you're saying a lot that there's, there's, there's some stuff that has to happen before you just dive in, right? Yes. I mean, I think, for example, um, a lot of uh, forgiveness can be about really encountering our own pain, our own fears, and other people's uh, pain and fear. So if I've been hurt by a friend who has said something unkind to me, for example, I might think to myself, well, I want to make up with her. I want to make sure we're back on the same page with one another. But I can't just do that by like jumping over the real issue of why did I feel hurt? What's going on inside of me? What's happening relationally between me and her? Um, am I being, you know, overly sensitive? Is there something else that's really happening that made me feel that hurt? Or is there a real dynamic here that has to be addressed? So I think forgiveness, you know, can't skip over those parts. And I think sometimes as we think if I'm a good Christian, you know, I'll forgive, and I'm going to skip all that stuff and get right to the finish line of forgiveness. Yeah, it all sounds so Ignatian. You know, there's a process to follow, and 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 I, you keep talking about freedom and that need to uh, to achieve freedom. Um, you know, as you're seeking to forgive, what, what, how do, how do you see freedom factoring into forgiveness? I think the thing is, uh, so much of forgiveness is about letting go of resentment, hurt, anger, and wishing the best for another person. So whether we reconcile with that person and resume relationship, or we just forgive and kind of move on, um, we end up freer if we can go into that process. So, you know, if I want to be able to, you know, give my love generously to people at work, to be loving to my husband, to be loving to my children, I'm not able to do that. I'm not free to love if I'm holding on to bitterness or resentment. So I've been married for a lot of years, and it's very important in a marriage to continue to forgive one another, uh, sometimes for just little everyday things, but to be able to let go of hurts of the past so that you can have a fresh start in the new day or new season of marriage. And um, I think that's, you know, part of how we're free to love. Yeah, I, I love that. And the idea of, of, of kind of those things, what, what are, again, it, it speaks to that kind of the, the stuff that gets in the way or that we have to kind of work through before we can really Im embark on that path of forgiveness. And, and Ignatian spirituality is all about, like you said, freedom and, and not being attached to things that are going to ultimately get in the way of, of, of you and God, um, and, and certainly, you know, uh, finding God in, in, in the other person. I, I want to, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily uh, define terms, but but I do think it's important to, to differentiate uh, between forgiveness and reconciliation, as as you did in your book, um, uh, and 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 just because I think sometimes we 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 use the two terms interchangeably, and sometimes that's appropriate. But I think probably when we're really getting into the weeds of things, uh, we should have probably uh, firm definitions of of what these these two things mean. So, can you offer your reflections on on how you differentiate forgiveness and reconciliation, and maybe how you see them also coming together? Yes. Yeah, so I think that forgiveness is something that is potentially done by only one party. When we forgive another person, we're letting go of anger and resentment and wishing the good for them. Mm. Uh, in the case of reconciliation, it's more complicated because there are two parties at least involved in that process. 
And so, you know, I can want to reconcile with someone else, but if that other person isn't interested in doing that work, then I really can't force that to happen. I don't have that control. So I think reconciliation can also include, you know, figuring out what are the terms by which we want to resume relationship, particularly in, in, in very big, you know, instances that need to get worked through. And, th- and we may not always reconcile. We can forgive without reconciling. Or we can reconcile in a way where the relationship after reconciliation looks not very much like the one beforehand. Mm, that takes a bit of courage too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you would see both of them though as 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 processes, right? Forgiveness and reconciliation. Yes. But but one is more um, self-driven and, and one is more kind of communal driven. Is that a fair? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you can always reach out to someone you, with whom you wish to reconcile, but there has to be that give and take of both parties. Uh, and then sometimes I think you can, you know, forgiveness sometimes does require learning more about the situation from another person. So I don't, I wouldn't want to say it's a completely, you know, solipsistic enterprise. Minimally, my relationship with God has to be at the foundation of how I go about forgiving another person. But sometimes it's very useful to, you know, learn more about why someone did what they did or is feeling what they're feeling um, as well. And self-forgiveness is important as well. So, Right, right, of course. I mean, at the very least dialogue, right? Dialogue in prayer, dialogue with one another, dialogue uh, just to, to, to get to that nugget of truth, right? Why, why, why has this happened? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in your book, you, you, you frequently return to your work in prison ministry. And I wonder if you might share a, a specific story from that ministry that really illustrates your understanding of forgiveness. Yes. I think one thing I've learned from the men in prison is how strong you are being when you're being vulnerable. Mm. <laughs> um, so I can think of instances where men in prison who had committed murder really struggled with self-forgiveness, struggled with the idea that God really did forgive them. Maybe even decades after a crime, they had a real sense of, you know, wanting to believe and have faith that God loved them uh, and that their sorrow was enough for God, but not always being able to accept that fully. For me, it was helpful to learn from them that, you know, becoming vulnerable before God And opening myself up to God's mercy is an important thing for all of us to do, whether it's for something small or something big, and to really trust in that divine love. And I think for me, that for us, if we can start with that Ignatian idea that we're all loved sinners, (laughs) that Mm. we're all loved sinners, and they're both important, you know, I'm not loved because I'm perfect, and I'm not unloved because I sin sometimes, then we can bring that to bear in our relationships with other people and say, you know what, you're a frail human being, and I love you, and that I can allow myself to be loved by others too. So where I've seen that in the prison context has often been this real sense of nurture and care between men who are there for different reasons. Um, For example, older men mentoring younger ones about their anger, and talking Mm -hmm. through with them, you know, why did you act out like that? Why did you try to get into a fist fight with another guy here. Talk, let's talk about that. And this real attitude of love and care that coming from one another as a way of, you know, helping them to understand their own actions and receive love and mercy. 
Yeah, I imagine it's a powerful, uh, you know, place to learn uh, about forgiveness and 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 to, uh, and I imagine you have uh, good lessons then that you bring back to your family and your community and, and your students from that. I, you know, uh, one image in your book that really resonated with me, um, you're talking about the elder son and the parable of the prodigal son uh, from one of my favorite, favorite books, Henry Nowen's um, Return of the Prodigal Son. Um and you used an, an example I thought really uh, just just seemed so uh, easy to easy to get, you know. And and it was this person who misses the holiday party at work in order to go back to their desk and and be more quote unquote productive, um, you know. And we've all I think we've all seen this. We've all I've I've certainly been this person at times, um, but I never would have thought about it in terms of forgiveness. Um, so I'm wondering if you might uh, do a better job explaining uh, your your anecdote than I just did, uh, and then unpack this image a little bit for us, so that we can kind of apply some of those tools to identifying this temptation in ourselves. Yeah, so I love that book by Henry Nowen as well, and it's really influenced my reading of the Prodigal Son. One really creative element that Nowen brings to that is to suggest that each of us is each of the sons. We can be mm -hmm. the son seeking forgiveness. We can be the father offering it. But we can also be that eldest son who's standing on the sidelines kind of resentful. And what I take the eldest son's motivation potentially to be is that he's afraid of the messiness of love and human relationships. He wants to stay either with this model of, well, I'm the good son, so I've earned my father's love. Or, you know, you're not good, so you don't deserve it. And both the father and the son who's willing to receive his father's love have a much more complex and nuanced and I think rich version of what love can be. So I, I think, you know, that for me, that image of the person who sort of shut himself up in his room and left the, the party behind is a person who has decided, you know, I want to be really self-protective in my relationships. I'm, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to do all the stuff I'm supposed to do, the job, the work, but I'm not going to open myself up to the celebration, the mess, the, the laughter, all the good things, all the good stuff that comes around with um, forgiveness and rejoining relationship with one another. Sometimes when we haven't fully worked that all, that stuff all out, you know, I actually think with that, yeah, with the instance of the celebration, I sometimes wonder of course, there's that moment of forgiveness between the father and the son, but there was probably more for them to talk about later, you know? So I, I sort of think that's a good model for us in human relationships. You know, we can spend time with one another, go to that Christmas party with the colleague we're not sure we've really figured it all out with, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. go to Thanksgiving dinner with our family member who's on the other side of the political spectrum, and then, you know, engage without things being fully worked out because, we know that mercy, we know that being merciful to ourselves and our own imperfection is far more important than locking ourselves up and try, just trying to do everything right. Yeah, I, listening to you describe it, it, it sounds almost like, you know, on the one side of things is, is the way things should be, quote unquote, and on the other side is it's just the the messiness of human relationship and, and, you know, forgiveness plays a role in one of those things. And then the other, you know, when you, when you, when you fall short of what things should be, you know, are you able to forgive yourself? And I think there's a temptation to say, well, no, I, I'm imperfect and I, and I do not deserve that forgiveness. And, you know, God invites us into that messiness. I think Pope Francis talks a lot about, you know, messiness in, in our lives and in Christian life, certainly. Um, uh, so I, I, it's a, it's a beautiful example. Um, 
you know, I, I, you give a lot of, again, speaking of examples, great examples of, of Ignatian imaginative prayer throughout the book and how it's really helped you uh, to forgive yourself, to forgive others. And I wonder if you have any tips for, for listeners who, who might be, uh, one, unfamiliar with that form of prayer. So kind of a, give an elevator pitch, a one-on-one there. Um, but then also, maybe you have a, a few suggestions that you might offer to those who are very familiar and looking to deepen their, ex- their, their experience of, of Ignatian imaginative prayer. Yeah, so um, I'm really grateful for this gift of a way to pray with scripture. Uh, in, a, in Ignatian imaginative prayer, it's it's kind of simple, actually. Uh, the idea is that you would open up a passage in scripture, read it, and then close the book, imagine yourself in the scene, and let the scene unfold for you. So this is a way that I think the words of scripture continue to speak to us. And it's also creating a kind of space for God to get in there, you know, into our interior uh, self as we're imagining, contemplating this scene. For me, I think the things that have been helpful have been, first of all, being spontaneous. You know, I think there's sometimes a temptation because we revere scripture to want to follow the narrative very, very closely. And it might be worse for academics like myself. (laughs) But I think the real beauty of a prayer form like this is that we can allow God to guide it and to lead it. And so that means a certain amount of surrendering to it. And I think when we're children, we daydream. We do this very naturally. So at least, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I would, you know, look out the window and my thoughts would just wander any which way. And to a degree, once we've asked for what we want, uh, our our desire, or um, to learn something from God in the prayer, we have to kind of let ourselves go with that scene and let things unfold. Um, I think something that's been personally helpful for to me in getting there is using our senses, which is an Ignatian idea, St. Ignatius talks about, you know, trying to really imagine a particular you know, seen before me. Sometimes I use even use a sense of touch. So, you know, if I were praying a person needing healing from Jesus, I might imagine where am I sitting? Do I want to touch the ground that I'm sitting on or the grass that I'm sitting on? What is that like as a way of kind of getting myself into a different space? Um, it, it occurs to me too that it kind of goes back to what we we're just what we we're just saying, right? That that there is this temptation to be like this is how you should approach scripture, um, or this is engaging in in the messiness of kind of living it out and, and seeing where God is, is is tugging tugging on our hearts in this moment. Um, I, I wonder too, just uh, you know, you, you shared some really beautiful examples in in the book. Um, how, how did you know as you were writing and kind of praying through this book, how did you know what you wanted to, you know, which, which ones were the ones that were going to be able to really um, give your readers something to, to chew on? How, how were you able to kind of parse through kind of what might be a personal prayer experience for you and what might be a really valuable shared experience uh, for your readers? Yeah. So actually that took a lot of work. You know, I think my first draft of the book really worked out of my own experiences and some formative moments where I felt forgiven or reconciled or a need to forgive myself. Um, But as I went on writing, I talked to people, you know, I had dialogue with my friends and I'm so appreciative that I had a number of friends who shared their own experiences of forgiveness with me. So I have a couple of stories in there about broken engagements, for example. I've never experienced that myself, but my friends, for for a couple of friends, actually, that was a really formative moment for them in their Mm -hmm. earlier lives. And they generously said, you know what, go ahead, use my example. I might change it a little bit. 
disguise the identity a teeny bit. But I think it was important for me to to talk to other people and see like what does forgiveness look like in your life. Mm. Nice. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a lot of good stuff um, in this book to kind of uh, uh, you know parse through for sure. You know, one of the reasons I really want to talk to you at this particular moment, uh, you know, at this particular moment in time, is because it doesn't you know it doesn't take any any uh, superhero to recognize that there's a lot of division uh, in our in our country, certainly in the world, but I think in our country in this moment, uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, as we muddle through these post-election weeks and months, uh, what do you suggest for us as a nation? You know, to really try to uh, begin the process of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of healing, uh, and, and and forge ahead to, to hopefully create something new. Right. So you're in luck because I'm definitely not a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> so I I just want to start by saying I'm absolutely muddling as I'm trying to figure out this as well. You know, but I think it is important. I, I have been thinking about this for a while. We are a country that's really deeply divided and in need of reconciliation. Um, I think there are a couple things I've been thinking about. I, I don't know that I have an answer so much as, I guess, a process. Hmm. So the first is, it does take time. And I don't think it can be something where we just say, well, we're going to skip over all the real divisions in order to get to this some false sense of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we have to care about justice. You know, justice matters. So if, um, you know, an interesting thing about political reconciliation is if I'm part of a political group, I'm not just forgiving someone on my own behalf. I'm part of a group with other members in it. So for example, I'm not sure what it would mean for me as a white person to say I'm going to forgive another white person for their racism against one of my black brothers and sisters. Right. I, you know, I, I can't really do that. I have to, I can be part of a group that dialogues about those things and seeks justice, but I can't, I don't think I can do that work on behalf of another person. So I think um, the things that have been helpful for, for me have been thinking about two things. One, vulnerability. Mm. <laughs> Our country has to be willing to be vulnerable, and we're really not right now. I think we're at a place where we're either vying for power. We want to be the person with our person in office. We want to be the winner. We don't want to be the loser. And there have been some unhelpful models about that, I think. Um, and I think that the other thing we need to, so we need to be vulnerable. We need to be willing to recognize that behind all this passion and all this anger and all this division is something that's at stake for people. And we have to figure out what is at stake for the person on the other side of this equation. If I'm, if I'm not understanding you, I have to somehow do that work of dialogue and figure out what is at stake for you and how can I listen to find out what is at stake for you. I was also very moved by something Dave Chappelle said on Saturday Night Live <laughs> the other night which was he gave a really fun, interesting monologue. But then at the end, he said, I don't hate anyone. He said he's observed a lot of divisions and a lot of hatred. And he says, though he's also been hurt, he doesn't hate anyone. And I think we must be on guard about that in our country. We must really be careful not to hate. And there's a great temptation, I think, for people to dwell on anger and hate. Whereas anger, I think, is really always about pain or fear. 
You know, it's a, a secondary emotion underneath anger. There's hurt or there's something people are afraid of. And so we need to figure out together what are those things and how can we help one another, you know, get what we deeply need as people and as a political community. What do you think, Eric? Oh, I, yeah, no, I, I don't have a, a perfect answer either. I, I like what you're saying. I, I, I think which, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, we can't, again, as a, as a white male, um, you know, it's hard to, uh, as you said, right, you, you, forg- you forgive yourself, but reconciliation takes takes work for the for the community. And I think, you know, justice, uh, you know, demands, you know, real dialogue, real change, real um you know, real effort. And I, and I think that there have been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of harms, a lot of harm done, uh, that needs to be rectified. You know, I, I don't think reconciliation is a, uh, a simple, okay, it's done, turn the page and move on. I think there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, what, one thing that I think that comes that I've been kind of grappling with myself, and maybe you have an, uh, a reflection on this too, is, is it ever too early to begin the work of reconciliation? Is there, is there, I, I certainly, you know, as we, I think we've, we've said very clearly, there's a process that needs to happen. Um, and, and as you know, again, you know, we're, we're two people that perhaps are not, um, you know, most harmed by the last, uh, you know, events, political events, but, uh, you know, is it, is it too, ever too early that, that, that reconciliation needs to be put on hold for something else? Yeah. So I think, So Walter Casper, in his book on forgiveness and mercy, says that God's justice and God's mercy are the same thing. Mm. They're not divided in God. And I think that that's the challenge for us, (laughs) is to figure out how when we enact justice, we actually are already moving towards reconciliation of a certain sort. Like justice is never going to be a kind of justice that completely excludes the person with with who are the parties that are involved in that process of justice that not not the kind of justice god wants for our community and i think whenever we're working for justice we're also already on the path to reconciliation right because injustice is about something being out of whack in our community about people not things not being it's not the reign of God. It's not the kingdom of heaven when there's injustice. So insofar as I work for justice or strive for better laws or better enforcement of the laws um, or whatever other form of justice I might be striving for, you know, that is part of the process of reconciliation. Because to, to reconcile, for example, with someone who's continuing to hurt me uh, unjustly isn't good. You know, it's okay to forgive and to try to find a new way forward. But I think to allow a pattern, to, to allow a person to harm another person, whether it's myself or another repeatedly, you know, isn't to love them. I'm not being loving to another person if I allow them to perpetuate their their hurtful behavior over and over and over again. So, and especially I'm thinking about a kind of political context here. Um, but again, I think we also have to think about what's beneath that action if that's taking place. Where is that coming from? And what's the deeper need that needs to be addressed? 
Yeah, no, that's a really important point that and it, it makes me think of, um, again, just this, everything is so connected, right? That we're talking about, you know, reconciliation and justice together, but those are, you know, we're talking about relationships again, the messiness of relationship. Um, and that, yeah, like you, you can't achieve justice or reconciliation if, if the harm is still ongoing. Uh, and that makes me think of, you know, you, you know, old, you know, what you say in the confessional, right? You know, I, I will not do this sin anymore. And, and you know, when you, when you bring it down to that, you say, oh, this seems kind of silly. But but no, it's that same thing, right? This idea that if to really achieve reconciliation uh, needs a, a commitment, a determination to say something will change uh, and and stop. Uh, no, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful point. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned anger, and I wonder if we might um, dig into that a little bit as well. Um, and particularly, uh, you know, what, what does Ignatian spirituality offer us as we, as we deal with, with anger, uh, our, our own anger, maybe cast at us anger in the country, in the church? Yeah. So I think, um, the thing about anger is that it's really important. It's a, it conveys something to us that something important is happening inside of us that needs to be attended to. So I think the Ignatian element of that is this, you know, careful examination of our conscience, examination of what's happening uh, within us frequently with God, with God's insight. But anger is not very good for making good decisions. <laughs> so something that's hard to practice, but really important is Ignatius says, you know, only act out of consolation, never act out of desolation. That's impossibly I hard. I haven't you know, probably figured that out, by the way, in terms of, and, and, you know, enacting that in my everyday life every day. But it's a goal for which to strive. And I think Ignatius is absolutely right, you know, that even if we're correctly and righteously angry about something like a major social injustice, we have to dig down to love as the real motivator for whatever we're going to do. We have to find that place of acting for love for others, not out of the anger before we're really going to be ready to act. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's probably a good rule of thumb, just, you know, dig in for the love, you know, search down deep where, where is, how can you come to that? No, it's, that's really important. Um, something else I've, I've been reflecting on after finishing your book is this idea of ritual, right? And I think, you know, again, as I said, you know, confessional is the, is the, is the quickest and easiest ritual we might associate with, with forgiveness. Uh, but you had some wonderful suggestions that were very different than, than kind of maybe our, our, our typical uh, notions. So I wonder if you might offer us a few of those, uh, you know, as we think about healing our nation and our communities, our, our families um, uh, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah. So in the book, I give examples of people doing things like, um, you know, going on a hike in the White Mountains with a stone and then placing it uh, there, you know, at the top of a mountain as a way of letting go of something that the person had been carrying with them. Uh, that's also done on the Camino in Spain. There's a place where people often put down items before this cross. And so that doesn't have to be about forgiveness, but it might be an instance of like unburdening ourselves and letting go. I think I also wrote about a person I know who had written down, um, you know, things about a relationship that had been lost and put them onto like a little sailboat and then set that sailboat free in the water so I really have appreciated seeing people all around the world come up with these innovative and creative ways for us to ritualize letting go and ritualize moving forward in some way, because we do need those markers of the before and the after. 
so, so that I know, okay, I, maybe I'm not totally working through every single feeling here, but I've basically made a decision. Now I want to let go of anger and resentment, and I want to shift something here. We do have political rituals. You know, we have the ritual of an election, of voting, of an inauguration. Hmm. I think those are important civic rituals because they come with, um, they actually make healing possible. So the ritual of saying, um, I concede to the person I've lost an election to is actually a really important civic ritual because it's a, a, a gesture of healing and saying, I respect that I am now transitioning to um, another person's um, role here. I think it's important for the winner to also be reconciling and to you know reach out to the other side. And those are rituals that I think have to be honored and respected when the time is right, when it's the appropriate time to do it so that the country can heal. But I think we probably have to find some other rituals for how to get past this. You know, I've, I've been, you know, it's funny, Eric, but I've been thinking about um, in my own family, there's a lot of political division. And one of the rituals that exists in my family is regular phone calls or FaceTime calls. Mm -hmm. And I have been thinking a lot about what does it mean to have those phone calls, even if we don't talk about the election or don't talk about politics, but just the regularity of, I want to stay in relationship with you despite differences that I, I want to talk to you and connect to you, whatever else is happening. Those kinds of rituals help build up the fabric of our society and our families, our communities. So, you know, there's the high and the low, you know, I think we need to be doing both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it just, and I don't have any good examples, but it just makes me think, you know, what are the small like ritualistic things I do day in and day out with the people I interact with that, you know, maybe I've allowed to kind of be kind of thrown off kilter in the last several weeks that, that might have some sort of inverse effect on, on others. I, I, I don't know. I can't think of a good example, but, um, you know, I guess we are, you know, we are people of ritual, you know, and, and I think it's important to be mindful and intentional. Um, speaking of ritual, and, and you've mentioned celebration throughout our conversation, but I, again, I was really struck at the end of the book when, when you talk about celebration uh, more formally. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, it, it's, it's important to celebrate, but I also wonder how is it hard to celebrate when we're still wrestling with, with memories? I mean, mem maybe memories are still coming up. We've not fully remembered, um, you know, all the harm done or named all the harm done. Um, I'm thinking, you know, particularly of, of grave structural sins, things like, you know, racism, slavery, uh, you know, as we continue to grapple with the legacies of these these sorts of atrocities, um, you know, as well as our interpersonal relationships, how how do we engage in a process of reconciliation that allows us to celebrate those restored relationships while also honoring uh, and not suppressing memories that may still be troubling and may still being uncovered? Yeah. So one of the scenes that I wrote about and really love um, from Scripture, from John's Scripture, the Gospel according to John, is where. Thomas wants to put his hands or touch the wounds of Jesus' side. And I think for me, that moment is about Thomas wanting to know that the Jesus that he loves, who's there standing before him resurrected, you know, is really the same person that went through all that pain and suffering. To me, that passage communicates that God does not ever erase history. We, um, with respect to racism in this country, there's a great temptation for people to want to get to erase blind 
contrary. But the risk is that we erase the real injustices, uh, the real evil that has happened by forgetting. And so I think we need to uh, make sure that somehow we can incorporate into the resurrection, whatever that looks like for our society, these healed wounds. Mm. You know, Jesus still walks around with healed wounds on his body after he's after he's reconciled with people, after he's resurrected. And that is our history too, as a as a nation and as a um, a society. We have to recognize that there those wounds have to be reincorporated somehow, but they can't be ignored because they're real and they're part of they're part of the history of the body politic. Mm. That's a beautiful thing to think about healed wounds. And I, and again, I, you know, it has, has political national ramifications, but also personal, you know, personal uh, implications as well. How do we, how do we, you know, as you, as you say, kind of take in those, those healed wounds and, and still walk around with them. Uh, so final question. Um, anyway, can, I, I, can, can I say one real quick more thing about that? That occurs oh, to me course, too. Is I think course. it's very important also to remember that, it's not just that um, white people need to atone, which I think we do have to atone for the sin of racism. I really think there should be some kind of penance or of some sort uh, that we do collectively. But I think also to recognize that uh, people of color are already doing this work of reconciliation, that the agency of the people who have gone out and voted, who are working for improvements in criminal justice and other kinds of laws, are themselves already enacting reconciliation from a place of strength, you know? So if you want to ask people, how do we do the work of reconciling with others in our society, even while we're wounded, people of color are some of the first people we should be asking about how to go about doing that. Yeah, no, of course. Good, good point. Thank you. Um, and so as we close out, right, how, Having having moved worked through your book, I wonder um, what gives you hope today as you as you look out at at, at your community, at, at the world, at our country. Um, where are you where are you finding hope? I think there's a lot of political energy, and I think that even though there are these divisions, we can't think about ourselves as an apathetic country. I I've you know certainly I've been around long enough to think about times where people were apathetic about elections or what was happening in the country. And I don't think we're there. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that we have this energy. So what I, I think we do have to do again is to dig down into that love, uh, figure out, you know, what, what, what holds us together? What's the love that holds us together as brothers and sisters? You know, we're all, you know, the same children of a common God. And even for people who are from a secular background who don't you know, maybe think about that that way. We share a love of the Constitution. We share a love of certain basic principles of freedom and equality, and those things help us to stay together as well. So I'm very hopeful that those things will sustain us, and that those things still are our our deepest passions. Well, I think it's always good to end on on hope on a hopeful note. Marina, thank you so much for uh, for spending time with us today and 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 sharing your reflections. I. Uh, Hope you have a great uh, Thanksgiving and 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 Christmas holiday. That's going to be around the corner before we know it, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me, and have a happy Thanksgiving and a very happy Christmas as well. Thank you. Before we go, I asked Marina to read from her book a brief prayer that she wrote. I think it's poignant and quite relevant to this particular moment. 
Lord, help me to live into new life. As green shoots sprout up from spring ground, as rain restores water to dry earth, as light rises over dusk and darkness, enlighten, strengthen, and restore my soul. Help me to unclench my tight fists that cling to old relationships or worn out identities. When I peer into the empty tomb, let me see, but not stay. Turn me around, convert my heart and mind, that I may walk along new paths and see with opened eyes. Breathe new life into my lungs, hand, feet, voice. Awaken me, surprise me, free me, that I might delight in you and proclaim your love anew. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Mike Jordan-Lasky, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at, at @JesuitNews, on Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and at Facebook, facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.